0: We're in the middle of our Triumph, or rather our Tragedy to Triumph Easter series, and it comes at an interesting time because as a nation we are, and really as a world, we are facing tragedy. So uh, this morning I'm actually in John uh, chapter 12, and we're going to look at uh, Jesus and an interaction that he had um, with a couple of Greek uh, guys. And we're going to break it into two parts. We're going to look at part one this week. We're going to look at part two the next week. And then on Easter morning, we've got a really fabulous psalm that we're going to take a look at. So wherever you are, living rooms or sitting around talking, uh, we are grateful that you are here with us. Take your Bible um, and turn to John 12. And I'm going to read verses 20 through 29 in the ESV translation. John 12, starting in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will will honor him. Next verse is really interesting. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this Easter season, where we feel probably the constraints of loneliness and isolation and separation, not just here in Wilmington, but around the United States and around the world. Father, I pray that you would meet with us and you would enliven our hearts and our minds by your spirit, that you would fill us this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would unpack this word in a way that would actually go down into our hearts and change us. Father, I pray that somehow I could uh, diminish up here and the word and the life and the light of you, Christ Jesus, would shine through and be glorified in this Easter season. And Lord, would you give us eyes to see tragedy through the lens of triumph. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So what I love here is, The Gospel of John was written in a way that a Greek audience could really appreciate and understand. The other Gospels were actually written uh, to the Jewish um, peoples, and yet John was really written in a way that the Greek mind and the Greek experience could really get their head around and, and fully comprehend And most likely what happened here is if if, uh, maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't, but if you flip a few chapters previously in John, Jesus saw a bunch of people changing money and making money in the temple. And so he went in there and he flipped over tables and he drove people out. He made a huge commotion. You can imagine if a pastor walked into another pastor's church in the city if we were doing regular church and flipped over tables and chairs and threw things that would create all manner of a commotion well that's what Christ Jesus did at the temple See, Jesus was never one who paid much homage to religious people, if you define religion by the external cleaning up. He's always interested in the heart. So he goes in and he flips these tables over and he drives out people, and um, most likely what happened is there's actually a group of Greeks who saw him drive everybody out, and they were intrigued, they were fascinated, and they wanted to know more. So what's interesting is they go to this guy named Philip. Now, Philip was a fisherman, probably a little rough around the edges. He lived on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and he would have spoken Greek based on where he lived. And so these Greeks felt very comfortable with Philip, so they went to him and said, Philip, we want to see Jesus. And Philip didn't know what to do, so he went and grabbed Andrew and i love andrew here because andrew knows his jesus and he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that his jesus will never turn away a seeking heart his jesus will never push away someone who is authentically coming to him and so andrew immediately grabs philip and they grab this group of greek people and they go and they have a conversation with the lord jesus Now, what's absolutely huge here, and the table must be set with this to fully comprehend and understand all that's going on, is at this point, the the wrestling in the country of Israel is, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? And for the first time here in these words, what we begin to see is this transition that happens where Jesus is not simply the Jewish Messiah, but he actually begins to externally and publicly in front of people transition into the Savior of the world. It's a brilliant sort of cataclysmic theological moment. And I love the Gospel of John because he's only 12 chapters in, and yet he's already brought us to the very goal, the very epicenter, if you will, of Jesus' goal on planet Earth. So here it is. The goal of Jesus is truly the centrality of the cross and then the resurrection We mentioned last week, but I'll say it again, that the Christian faith is an Easter faith. So my first point this morning is the great plan is literally glorification, and that's coming right out of verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come. See, previously he would actually say the hour has not yet come, but what he's actually saying here is the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now... When a Jewish audience was standing around listening to Jesus speak and they think of glorification, they're going to think of sort of Old Testament glorification, kings and armies. They're going to think of someone like a King David who's at the helm on a big horse and a steed and a whole army of power behind him and glory and majesty and wealth and fame. And so their sort of preconceived notion is that they're looking for a Messiah who comes at the helm of an army, who comes with great power and great prestige and even great wealth. What's interesting is a, a Greek uh, person would carry something a little bit different than that. So Jesus' Greek listeners, when he says the Son of Man, it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified, every one of Jesus' Greek listeners would, would sort of filter it through um, a place of self-exaltation, um, almost like hubris. It is, that, that was the ethic of the Greco-Roman world, was I am, and, it, and, it, and so when a Greek person would hear Jesus say, the hour has come for him to be glorified, they were thinking he was going to sort of self-exalt. So you have two groups literally standing around here. You have some uh, Jewish people, and then you have this group of Greeks that's just come to him, and Jesus says, here's the great plan. It's glorification. And their minds start spinning, wondering, what does glorification even mean? And Jesus begins to make this profound connection, this, this link between glorification and crucifixion. And so the glorification of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus becomes sort of one in the same and is absolutely fundamental and essential and at the very core of this Easter drama. Jesus ultimately glorifies himself by falling to the ground and dying like a grain of wheat. See, Jesus then, uh, in a way, becomes transparent and almost becomes the thing by which you can view God. Jesus becomes the way and the truth and the life, He becomes the lens by which we as humans, those Greeks, those Hebrews, the nation of Israel, could see God. And what's fascinating is in these moments, he's transitioning from not just the Jewish Messiah to literally the Savior of the entire world. You get a little grasp of that as Jesus is on the cross when he's in a few chapters further, but he's spread sort of eagle on the cross, arms spread wide, and you get this sense immediately that his heart is not just for the nation of Israel, but it is for the Gentile world, for the Greek world, for the Roman world, for you and I today. See, Jesus' great plan was glorification, but it wasn't glorification like the Jews thought. It wasn't glorification like the Greeks thought. It was glorification in an entirely different way. It was glorification by way of crucifixion. Gruesome, death, pain, difficulty. Which brings me to my second point this morning. The great paradox of the gospel of Christ Jesus, the great paradox of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that life comes through death. And the Greeks standing around that morning would have scratched their heads and the Jewish people would have scratched their heads and everyone has these presumptions about what the Jewish Messiah or the Savior of the world would look like and he shatters every single one of them and he literally is saying the great paradox is life comes through death. You can see it most clearly in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is literally foretelling his coming death. He is literally saying, I am going to fall to the ground and die. And it is in my dying that I will bear much fruit. It is in the laying down of my life. It is in death that life will come. Life springs forth from his death. You know, if you read the Gospels. Maybe you haven't, and I'd encourage you to do so. Take a look at the actual words of Jesus. Don't simply listen to what maybe religious people or church people or whoever is saying about Jesus. You go. You open the Gospels. You read for yourself this Jesus. But it's fascinating to me because if you look through all four of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John you can actually see Jesus preaching the Gospel. So, Gospel is just a, a Bible word that means good news. And he's literally preaching the good news. He's preaching hope. He's preaching life. He's preaching love. He's preaching light. By the way, we need some of that today, don't we? We need some hope. We need some light. We need some life. We need some love, but he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching this good news, and yet every time he preaches it, seven times that I can find, he literally says, take up your cross and follow me. Now again, it's this sort of this tragedy through the lens of triumph kind of idea, because you're all of a sudden going, hang on a second, we're following you, Jesus, and then you want us to take up our cross. And so this great paradox of life comes by way of death. When Jesus preached the gospel those seven times, take up your cross and follow me, he had not yet even been crucified. So literally his hearers would have heard, come and die so that you can follow me. And that literally becomes the great paradox. It was the paradox for Jesus. His death gave way to life. And then it also becomes the paradox for us. One of the things that from time to time I struggle with the American presentation of the gospel is that we tend to preach a gospel that would say, just believe. But when I hear Jesus preach the gospel, he says, come and lay it all down. Come and die that you may have life. Come and surrender. Come and lay it all at my feet that I will fill it and raise you to life in Christ. See, there's this incredible paradox from Genesis to Revelation. And you can start at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, and work your way through. And every book is pointing to and foretelling this climactic moment in all of history where Jesus comes and he lays his life down. And in the laying down of his life, he is actually brought to life and God glorifies him. It is this life through death paradox. See, Jesus called me to walk with Him when I realized that He was crucified for me. But I take the next step in walking with Him when I realize that He's called me to be crucified with Him. This brings me to my third point, and this is really the climax of this passage. It's my favorite part of this passage, and it's the great tension And it's a tension that Jesus faced, and it's a tension that every one of us faces. But the great tension is a question of will. So let's go back just a minute. We have the great plan that Jesus is unfolding, which is his glorification, meaning crucifixion. We have the great paradox that he is unfurling before us that is literally, as he lays down his life in death, so springs forth life, not just for him, but for us. Jesus actually has the name above all names because he laid it all down. But what we see here then is the great tension, which is a question of will. So look uh, at verse 27 and 28. And I, I, this is um, probably my favorite part of this passage because we tend to think Jesus as um, like so perfect that he wasn't tempted, that he wasn't human, that he didn't have like normal flesh and blood and the desires of a 33-year-old man. And he did. And that's what we actually get to see right here in verse 27. He literally says, now my soul is troubled. He's literally saying, I am troubled. I am uh, broken. I am, um, I am grieved. I am in pain. And then he goes on and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is, it's, this is brilliant of John, the, the author of this um, book. But in the book of John, he doesn't include the account of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. You could look at the other uh, books and, and read those accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane. But what happened in Gethsemane is this big wrestling. Is it going to be my will or is it going to be God's will? And so Jesus actually wrestles with that. What's also interesting is if you think of the Lord's Prayer, you actually say, Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what we see in Gethsemane and literally what we see right here when he says my soul is troubled is Jesus enters this great tension and there's a question of will is it going to be Jesus's will sort of he's having a moment I think of uh, where he's daunted and even his physical body is raising up and he's going I don't want to go and die on the cross I don't want to fall to the ground and die like the kernel of wheat and literally his flesh and blood needs to be strengthened he's crying out you see this very same thing in the garden of Gethsemane. And I love that the gospel writers didn't spare us from the authentic reality that Jesus faced the choice. He faced the choice. Is it going to be his will or is it going to be God's will? And then I love what happens next. It is so powerful. It is so powerful. Listen to this. Then a voice comes from heaven I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, go with me here. Go with me here. Jesus is at this point of personal decision. He is literally at a crossroads. He is uh, facing, am I going to fully obey and and, and go uh, the will of God to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the hill called Golgotha, am I going to die, am I going to pay the penalty, or am I going to go my own way, go my own desire, am I going to go against the will of God? Now, now, come on, hang with me, because this is so important, I think, for not only Jesus, but it's important for every single one of us. And I want you to take a step back, and I want to just educate you on three points. The audible voice of God came to Jesus three times, not once, not twice, three times, And what's fascinating to me is if you look at the trajectory in the life of Jesus, it's that the audible voice would actually come when Jesus was at a massive crossroads. When Jesus was at a spot where his own flesh and his own humanness, because he was fully God and yet he was fully man, his own humanness could have risen up and gone, no, 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 I'm not going, I'm not going to pay that price. So three times we see the the audible voice of God show up. The first time was at his baptism. John the Baptist dunked him in the River Jordan. And he is literally being set out and called and commissioned. He faced a crossroads. He faced a choice. Is it going to be my will or is it going to be God's will? And he chose rightly. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus literally came off that mountain and he had to choose to go towards Jerusalem and towards the cross and obey God. Or he had to choose to go his own way and preserve his life. And then the third time actually happens here with Andrew and the Greeks. And I think literally Jesus' flesh and blood is rising up and he's going, my soul is troubled. I don't wanna go to the cross. I don't wanna die. I don't wanna pay the price. And the audible voice of God comes again. Now, America, in my opinion, the American church, has the concept of sin all mixed about. Sin is not a list of do's and don'ts. Your entrance to heaven isn't based on the good things you do or the bad things you've done. No, no. Sin is at its core and essence simply saying, Lord, I choose my will, not your will. That's why the Lord's prayer starts with it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So when you come to Christ Jesus, you literally uh, surrender your heart and your life and you're saying, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you come in? Would you live inside of me? Would you live in my heart? But then you face the daily decisions. And we see that illustrated in the life of Christ Jesus right here. He's literally going, my soul is troubled. I don't want to go the way that you've called me, God. God. And the audible voice of God speaks again. See if all we do is adhere to a set of rules or guidelines or do's and don'ts, we're in a dead religion. What makes Christianity beautiful? What makes a relationship with Jesus beautiful is it's about a God who came here in search of relationship for us. It's about a God who laid it all down. It's about a God who chose to become fully human and to fall to the ground and die like that kernel of wheat so that he could reap a harvest of life not only for him but for every single one of us. What made Jesus sinless, what made Jesus different than everyone who ever has been or will be is that at every critical juncture he chose God's will not His will. I don't know about you, but I find myself often, I'm a pastor, I'm a professional Christian, (laughs) and yet I find myself often arguing and disagreeing with the will of God. And I think that I would want every one of us in every place, everywhere that's tuned in to this, to actually look deep into these words right here. Jesus didn't ignore the fact that he was troubled. He didn't ignore the fact that he disagreed. He brought it and in some ways confessed it. And the Lord spoke to him. And I think we ought to make note that what God did for Jesus in this situation, he is committed to doing for every man, for every woman, for every child, for every person that will come to him in true surrender. Our God is not a silent God. Our God is a good God, a good Father who loves you and will meet you. Our God is a God who speaks. And in the moments where you find life too hard to bear, something in your marriage, something with your health, if you're a single person and you're alone, if you're facing the death of a loved one, if fear and anxiety has consumed you because of this virus that's on our shores, in those moments. God does not leave us in the loneliness and weakness of our frail humanity. No, 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 no. If we listen to him, if we incline our ears to him and the ears of our heart to him, we will hear him speak. Our trouble, if you write anything down today, write this down. Our trouble is not that God does not speak. Rather, our trouble is that we choose not to listen. Now, listen to me. Jesus came here with a great plan for glorification, which was crucifixion. Contrary to what everyone saw, that was the path to glorification. Jesus taught us, not just here, but throughout everywhere he spoke, that there's this great paradox, and life actually comes when you lay your life down, when you come to the end of your ambition and the end of yourself. And it's fascinating to me because Jesus never criticized sinners. He never was ugly towards people who were stuck in terrible situations. He was only um, angry, and he reserved his harshest criticism for actually church people, for pastors. For leaders, that's who he criticized in those days, people who were uh, externally doing everything right. And so we live in this day and age where Jesus still teaches that the ultimate life, not only on planet Earth, but in eternity, comes through us laying it down in death, in surrender. Let me say again, I came to Jesus when I realized that Jesus was crucified for me, and he rose again. But I began to walk with Jesus when I realized that he called me to be crucified with him. God has spoken, dear church. God will speak and God is speaking. The question that you face today, the question that I face today, and the question that we're going to face again tomorrow is, is it going to be my will or is it going to be God's will? Is it going to be my way or is it going to be God's way? And if the Jesus that we know and love and adored faced that same question, if he faced that same difficult set of circumstances, if he had literally to make up his mind, if he literally said, my heart is troubled, he had to wrestle my will or your will. But what made Jesus perfect is, in the end, he chose God's will every time. I've got good news for you and good news for me. There's been a lot of my life where I've failed to choose rightly. We serve a God of second chances and third chances and hundredth chances, and I don't know where you are today, but our God is giving you another opportunity to choose again. choose his will to actually pray that lord's prayer over your life lord your kingdom come and your will be done in my life and in my family and in the circles and spheres of influence in which you've planted me notice in verse 29 as we conclude here So Jesus has just said, my soul is troubled, and then God's voice literally comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. But look at verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said, it had thundered. They missed the voice of God. It couldn't have been any more plain. Jesus was speaking to them, fully man, fully God, incarnate, right there, God in person. And he was literally saying, my heart is troubled. He was illustrating this, my will or your will, tension that he was in. And as he's illustrating it, the voice of God literally descends and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the people missed it. They thought it thundered. Church, don't be so distracted with the coronavirus or your stocks or what's going on even in your marriage or with your kids or in your singleness or in your loneliness or your health concern that you miss the centrality of the gospel of Christ Jesus and the very voice of God. The question today, the question tomorrow. If you already know Jesus is going to be, is it your will or is it God's will? Will you pray that Lord's Prayer? If you're tuned in this morning and you don't know this Jesus I'm talking about, and maybe you're just familiar with religion that cleans up the outside and sort of doesn't worry about the heart, I want to say to you that Christianity is a lousy religion, but it's a brilliant relationship with a God who came and walked the earth among us. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you've never given your heart and life to Jesus in true surrender says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no magic words. It's a prayer you can pray in your living room, in your car, watching on a phone, listening on a whatever. And the danger of the sort of sinner's prayer that we tote in churches is that you can actually say the words but have a heart that is far from him. He's interested in hearts. He's interested in his will over your will. He's interested in a choice to come and lay it down, to come and die. And if you're willing to glorify him, see him on that cross, lay down your heart, surrender your life, and establish that for you, you're going to follow him and his will, he will meet you at every critical juncture, at every crossroads, at every place of anxiety. He will meet you because he is a good father.